So Father in heaven, we're thankful that you have brought us together this evening. You are our gracious and loving God. We come before you tonight asking for your blessing. You know that uh, we have some technical difficulties. The notes are not working. And so we pray that you might speak to us regardless and that you will bring to mind the things that need to be discussed. I pray that you will guide our weekend together and especially as we remember October 22, what has been deemed the great disappointment. It is a reminder that we have a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, who is interceding for us and who will come for us soon and help us to be ready for that day. Bless us the Sabbath now, we ask, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this weekend, we're doing a three-part study together this evening, and actually tomorrow afternoon, they're really connected. There's really part one and part two. But tomorrow morning, our message is still related, but you will see it's going to be a thread running through uh, as opposed to a part one and part two sequentially. And really, we're going to be discussing prophecy this weekend together, and we'll be thinking particularly regarding Revelation chapter 13 and also Revelation chapter 18 and the idea of coming out of Babylon. But tonight, as you can see, our title is Sunday and Them That Dwell on the Earth. And so we're going to do a quick review of Revelation chapter 13, and then we're going to take a bit of a deeper dive in one particular aspect of Revelation chapter 13. So let's begin. Revelation chapter 13, a quick overview of the outline of the chapter. I know I am drastically oversimplifying what this chapter uh, talks about, but Revelation chapter 13 begins with the first beast that comes out of the sea. And that beast represents the papacy, or the Roman Catholic Church state power. And then sequentially later on, a second beast arises out of the land, and this beast is the United States of America. I know I'm not proving any of this. This is review, right? And then after that, there is this thing that is set up. It's called the image to the beast. But it's also called the image of the beast, which we're going to discuss, that slight nuance. What is that all about? And then the chapter ends with this thing, the ominous mark of the beast, right? This is basically the four major sections of Revelation chapter 13. So what is the image to the beast? Okay, let's just take a quick look in Great Controversy, page 448. But in the very act of enforcing a religious duty by secular power, the churches with themselves form an image to the beast. Hence, the enforcement of Sunday keeping in the United States would be an enforcement of the worship of the beast and his image. There is so much to talk about here, but suffice it to say, the image to the beast is set up at the passing of the Sunday law. That's what the statement is talking about. And in particular, it's talking about an image to the first beast, right? And so it's going to kind of look like the first beast. We'll be discussing this a little bit more. But just for now, Sunday law is the beginning of the image to the beast. Now, what about the mark of the beast? Great controversy, page 449. As men then reject the institution which God has declared to be the sign of his authority and honor in its stead that which Rome has chosen as the token of her supremacy, they will thereby accept the sign of allegiance to Rome, the mark of the beast. And it is not until this issue is thus plainly set before the people and they are brought to choose between the commandments of God and the commandments of men 
that those who continue in transgression will receive the mark of the beast. This is a very important idea here. Does anyone currently have the mark of the beast? Very clearly, no. The mark of the beast, sometimes in shorthand, we might say things like, you know, Sunday is the mark of the beast. Well, no, that's actually not the case. The statement is quite clear. The mark of the beast is only instituted when several things happen. Number one, when the issue regarding Sabbath, the law of God, Sunday, law of God versus law of man, is plainly set before the people and they are able to make an informed decision and then they are forced to choose between the commandments of God versus the commandment of men, then and only then is the mark of the beast an issue. Prior to that, it's not a thing. So nobody currently has the mark of the beast. But this distinction is important because sometimes we think, oh, Sunday or Sunday law, therefore that must be the mark of the beast. Well, that's actually not technically the case. There are actually steps to this. And this, there's a reason why this is important, and you'll see why as we go along. So we're still reviewing. So Revelation chapter 13, there's an image of the beast, which is also called the image of the beast. And that's when the Sunday law is initially invoked. And then eventually it turns into a mark of the beast. And that happens when we are forced to choose Sunday versus Sabbath. You choose one in rejection of the other. Okay, if we choose Sunday in rejection of the Sabbath, we receive the mark of the beast. If we, receive, or we, we accept Sabbath instead of Sunday, we then receive the seal of God. That's the, the truth and the counterfeit um, issue. All right. So now, who is responsible for passing the Sunday law? That's really the essence of our study today. Who is responsible for the Sunday law? We hear a lot of chatter all the time. Every time there's some significant headline news, right? The Pope visits the United States. There's a Catholic in the, president, in the White House. Oh, there's another Supreme Court justice that's Catholic. You know, these types of things always stir up conversation on this subject. But what does the Bible tell us? Who actually is responsible for passing the Sunday law? The Bible actually tells us. Or uh, maybe another way to put it, who's responsible for setting up the image to the beast? Because we just read that the Sunday enforcement is when the image to the beast is set up. Revelation chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, it says this, And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, notice that, which had the wound by a sword and did live, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So there are a couple things I want to mention here. Number one, let's just answer the question. Based on what we just read in this passage, who makes the image to the beast? It is them that dwell on the earth. Can you see that from the text itself? It is not a singular agent. It is not even a singular beast power. It is them that dwell on the earth. Okay, we're going to discuss a little bit more what that means. But I want to just take a look at this. What's the difference here? Image to the beast, image of the beast. What's, what's going on here? The image to the beast, when we think about this idea, like when I give something to someone, it's like a gift. Where I give something in honor of them. It's like an homage to the beast. 
But then there's a little metamorphosis. That word to and of, all of a sudden, it's not just an image to the beast. Like, I'm not just giving this to the beast, like in honor of, in recognition of my fealty or my loyalty to him. Now it becomes an image of the beast, meaning now it's become a clone. It's become a replacement or, or a replica of the beast. So when we talk about the image to the beast, initially there's a Sunday law that's passed. And the Sunday law is in homage of the beast, in honor to, in recognition of the beast's power and authority. But then it gradually shifts, and it might not be that gradual, and it metamorphs into a clone of the beast, meaning it becomes a system that looks and speaks and behaves like the first beast. Okay? Keep that in mind because this is an important point later on. Okay, but the question is, who is responsible for the Sunday law? And them that dwell on the earth, they make the image to the beast. Okay, so let's take a deeper dive into this. Great Controversy, page 442. Saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast. Ellen White here is quoting the verse we just read. And then she explains. Here is clearly presented a form of government in which the legislative power rests with the people. A most striking evidence that the United States is the nation denoted in the prophecy. So this defines for us, who are them that dwell on the earth? According to this passage, it's the people. The people in whom the legislative power rests. So specifically, we're talking about the citizens, the populace, the society at large, the voting public in the nation. Great Controversy, page 592. Political corruption is destroying love of justice and regard for truth. And even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has, so, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. So notice very carefully here. Where does the sun demand for Sunday law, where does it originate? Comes from the people, the popular demand, public favor. It is from the masses. It's when the politicians read the polling, right? And they say, oh, this is what the people want. They're getting calls in the senator's office, the congresspeople's office. They're getting letters, and they're saying, this is what we want. And they give the people what they want. That is how the Sunday law comes about. So it's very important to remember because the Sunday law will be a point of unprecedented unity. And this is particularly, I think, salient today because imagine if there is any issue, any issue, that could bring a majority of Americans together don't you think there'll be some, some power behind whatever that issue might be? Because guess what? There is nothing that we agree about right now. I think we all agree. That's like the one thing we can agree on is that we don't agree on anything. But the Bible tells us that them that dwell on the earth will make an image to the beast, meaning everyone, and I, I don't know if that is going to be 100%, right? There's never 100%, but at least a majority, a super majority, a major portion of people are going to say, yes, this is what we want. This is what we can get done together, finally. Finally, there's one thing. 
And the Spirit of Prophecy makes this clear. Notice what it says in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 450. Satan will excite indignation against the humble minority who conscientiously refuse to accept popular customs and traditions. Men of position and reputation will join with the lawless and the vile to take counsel against the people of God. Wealth, genius, education will combine to cover them with contempt. Persecuting rulers, ministers, and church members will conspire against them to secure popularity and patronage. Legislators will yield to the demand for a Sunday law. Can you hear the unifying language in here? People of opposite ends of the class strata, of the educational spectrum, people with differing viewpoints coming together for a common cause. All right. Great Controversy, page 588. On the same theme, papists, Protestants, and worldlings will alike accept the form of godliness without the power, and they will see in this union a grand movement for the conversion of the world and the ushering in of the long-expected millennium. This is speaking of the Sunday law in particular. So here we see papists, Protestants, and worldlings. Worldlings, we think of them like they don't even believe anything. And yet they're in favor of the Sunday law. We're going to take a look at that too as well. And you will see that this is not the first time this has happened in history. History repeats. And the very first Sunday law actually had the same purpose of unifying a fractured empire. Great Controversy, page 53, tells us, In the early part of the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine issued a decree making Sunday a public festival throughout the Roman Empire. The Day of the Sun was reverenced by its pagan subjects and was honored by Christians. It was the emperor's policy to unite the conflicting interests of heathenism and Christianity. So this is nothing new. It's actually been the plan from the very start. But actually, at the end of time, Satan executes his strategy to perfection. It hasn't ever fully worked out in the past, but in the closing scenes of history, it will all come together. Satan's strategy will be decentralized grassroots, and viral. That is the secret to his power at the end of time. It is not some unified conglomerate, like some secret cabal of ruling elites that's going to just foist the Sunday law on an unsuspecting population. It's like, ha, we got you now. No, that's not how it works. It's not some back room, you know. You, you, you imagine like people smoking cigars, right, in the back room, making deals like, the senators and, you know, politicians, you know, pulling the strings. Mm-mm. It's not going to be some totalitarian dictator, uh, Stalinesque, you know, Maoist type of guy coming in. Thou shalt worship on Sunday or you will go to the gulags. Not quite. It's going to come from all quarters. People from different viewpoints, different ideologies, different religions, different classes, they're going to say, we actually agree. We want this. And they're going to pound the doors down of their Congress people and say, give us Sunday. So what that tells me is that if we want to identify the devil's movements and his strategies, we really should not focus all of our attention on just the White House. Or who's the latest Supreme Court being nominated? Justice, Supreme Court justice. Or counting how many Catholics there are in Congress. Or what, even what just the Pope is doing. I'm not saying all of that is insignificant. The point is, it's not going to be from there. 
The government doesn't force the Sunday law on the people. The people force Sunday law on the government. And so we need to see how the devil is influencing the crowd. You understand? That's where the power lies. Because you can't, you can't shoot at a crowd and take everybody out, right? It's decentralized. That's the power of the final deception. So actually, before we get to the next point, so this leads to an important question, and that is, if that's the case, that doesn't really jive with reality. Because a lot of people ask the question today, whenever we talk about Sunday Law, we preach about it in our evangelistic meetings, and people say, well, America and the developed world, the, the civilized West, if you want to call it that, is becoming increasingly godless. They don't go to church. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in much of anything. How can they possibly want Sunday? Sunday's like this relic of the orthodoxy, right? It's like the Middle Ages type of stuff. Like, why would sophisticated, enlightened, modern, you know, scientifically-minded people, or even postmodern people, why would they care about Sunday? We're going we're gonna to he- address that question head-on, okay? But before we get there, we need to set the stage with an idea, a concept, a principle that is, I think, often overlooked whenever we talk about the Sunday Law. And I've sort of been teasing this as we've gone along, okay? And that is that the Sunday Law comes in phases, all right? The Sunday Law does not come in one fell swoop, and then Jesus comes the next day. It doesn't quite happen that way. So many scholars have divided the phases of the Sunday Law in different ways, but um, I will refer you to a message by Dr. Norman McNulty, former director of Avonhope, friend of Avonhope here. He did a message, it's on Audiverse, called The Four Phases of the Sunday Law, in which he breaks this down. Okay, so I'm just going to have one slide here that's going to plagiarize from his presentation, but he won't mind. So the four phases of the Sunday Law goes like this. At first, the Sunday Law comes and it is just a no-work Sunday. Okay, it's a civil law that says shops close, business close, don't work on Sunday. And this corresponds with what we talked about, the image to the beast being set up. And then the next phase is, okay, don't work on Sunday, but now you also have to worship on Sunday. But if you want to worship on Sabbath and and observe Sabbath on the seventh day, you're still free to do that. Okay, so this is phase two. And this is when the image to the beast becomes, starts looking like the image of the beast. It starts behaving like the papal power. And the beast begins to live and to speak. Okay, and this is when the mark of the beast crisis begins. People start having to make a decision they, they begin to hear, right? They understand the issues and they start having to make the decision they're going to have to choose one or the other. And then step three, Sabbath worship becomes forbidden. So now not only do you have to worship on Sunday, you are no longer allowed to worship on Sabbath. And then step number four is the death penalty if you do not comply. Just a quick note here. This is actually not unique to Revelation chapter 13. If you remember in Daniel chapter three, there was also a story of an image being set up you had to bow down or be thrown in the fiery furnace. That is like a generalized decree you must worship a certain way. It's like establishment, you know, the establishment clause in the Constitution. But then in Daniel chapter 6, there's another religious liberty crisis with Daniel. But this time, he was required, not only required to worship the false king, right, the god, the false worship, but he was also forbidden from praying to the true God. 
You see that in Daniel chapter 3 and chapter 6. Similar type of scenario here between um, the phases of the Sunday law. So the Sunday law begins with this mild phase. This is how I term it. Because it's really not a religious thing. It just don't work. And then it gradually ratchets up and becomes more and more severe of a violation of religious liberty and conscience. And it becomes ultimately a death decree. So... Tonight, we're going to really just focus primarily on the first point. And tomorrow afternoon, we're going to look at how it escalates from point one, you know, step one onward. So how do I substantiate this idea that the first phase of the Sunday law is merely no work on Sundays? Okay, Spirit of Prophecy tells us, uh, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, page 232. The light given me by the Lord at a time when we were expecting just such a crisis as you seem to be approaching was that when the people were moved by a power from beneath to enforce Sunday observance, Seventh-day Adventists were to show their wisdom by refraining from their ordinary work on that day, devoting it to missionary effort. Notice carefully what she is saying. She's saying that there is going to be a time, soon, she says, that people will enforce Sunday observance. How does she recommend God's people respond? Stand up for your rights! Protest! Right? Demand your day in court. Is that what she says? She says, show your wisdom by not working. So why would, that, why would this be possible? It's because the law only requires you not to work. Do you think she would actually tell us to not worship on Sabbath? No, of course not. So she's saying, go as far as you can in compliance with the law. And in this initial phase of the Sunday law, she clearly calls it Sunday, Sunday observance, right? Devote your Sunday to missionary effort. Don't go out of your way to demonstrate your rights. All right, continuing. To defy the Sunday laws will but strengthen in their persecution the religious zealots who are seeking to enforce them. Give them no occasion to call you lawbreakers. If they are left to reign up men who fear neither God nor man, the reigning up will soon lose its novelty for them. What she's saying is, let them go arrest those other, you know, those other people that are causing trouble. Don't make yourself... The headline in the news and as they go after those people eventually you know hopefully you'll lose novelty for them and they will see that it is not consistent nor convenient for them to be strict in regard to the observance of sunday keep right on with your missionary work with your bibles in your hands and the enemy will see that he has worsted his own cause one does not receive the mark of the beast because he shows that he realizes the wisdom of keeping the peace by refraining from work that gives offense, doing at the same time a work of the highest importance. So here again, she makes a distinction between the initial Sunday observance with the Sunday legislation that leads to the mark of the beast later on. She makes a distinction. You don't receive the mark of the beast by of refraining from work in this initial mild phase. And her reasoning is very clear. There is still a, a work of highest importance to be done in this initial phase of the Sunday law. Because people are now awakened. The thing that we've said all along as Adventists is going to happen, and people say, oh, you bunch of conspiracy theories, there will never be a Sunday law until it finally happens. And then people are like, oh, what else do you got to tell me? And Ellen White is saying, spend your time teaching the truth to those people so that when the crisis is really brought to focus, we would have given them the best chance to make the right decision. Rather than spending our time protesting and marching in the streets and doing all this stuff, she's saying there is a work of highest importance here. All right, I'm getting off 
I'm getting off this soapbox. I guess we'll come back to it a little bit later at the end of the message. But the point here is the mild phase of the Sunday law is clearly depicted by the pen of inspiration, and she actually tells us how to respond. So this is the point I'm trying to say. The initial Sunday law need not be an explicitly religious decree. And the devil has only to get his nose in the tent, right? And eventually the rest of the camel follows. That's the, perhaps a little bit of a crude image, but I think you get the point. Just like we say we have the right arm of the gospel, medical missionary work. It's the entering wedge. It gets us in the door. It gets us in the people's minds so that the rest of the gospel can take its work. This is the same concept. The Sunday law initially is just wedged in, and then, init- and then after that, the, the theocratic tendencies then come after. So sometimes there's this idea like, oh, America has to completely uh, capitulate and become a theocratic, dictatorial type of you know, Christian nationalist country before the Sunday law will ever happen. I'm not so sure that's the case. It is entirely possible for the Sunday law to be the entering wedge that leads to that theocratic Christian nationalist type of conclusion. And so, this tells me that Sunday need not only be supported through explicitly religious means. Non-religious support of Sunday is just as useful to the devil as religious support. Because the entering wedge is just to get his foot in the door. In Last Day Events, page 125 and 126, it actually gives us an indication that this may be the case. The Sunday movement is now making its way in darkness. The leaders are concealing the true issue, and many who unite in the movement do not themselves see whether the undercurrent is tending. They are working in blindness. So there are people supporting Sunday, Ellen White says, who have no idea where it's going. There are many, even of those engaged in this movement for Sunday enforcement, who are blinded to the results which will follow this action. They do not see that they are striking directly against religious liberty. There are many who have never understood the claims of the Bible Sabbath and the false foundation upon which the Sunday institution rests. So she gives a clear picture that Sunday might be brought about. Them that dwell on the earth might include an entire segment of people who are unwittingly supporting a Sunday law, not understanding the real purpose and the real motives behind it. And historically, we can actually see this in action. Back in the late 1800s, there was the Blair Bill going through Congress, the Blair Sunday Rest Bill. And it's interesting to to note that they were not initially, they were actually not promoting a strictly religious law. The pretext for the Sunday Rest Bill was to preserve the civil Sabbath. And it was defined as the preservation of Sunday as a day of rest for civil rather than religious purposes. Okay? That was actually the whole thing with the Blair Bill. And we, we know that the Christian lobby, meaning the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the National Reform Association, they were the main drivers of Sunday, and they certainly had the religious motives behind it, no doubt about that. But there was a second major block of support for the Blair Bill, and this was the labor unions and the working men in the country. And these are the Knights of Labor, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers, Railroad Managers, State Unions. And why in the world would trade unions and labor unions care about Sunday legislation? 
Well, it was because of workers' rights. They wanted to preserve the rights of their laborers not to be exploited, for them to have a day off, and they did it purely for civil, in this case, or secular reasons. And so even in our history, we can see that Satan's strategy has been to unify disparate factions to promote his agenda. So now this leads to the question that we were asking earlier. So is it really possible for there to be widespread support of Sunday today? Isn't this just like some fringe, you know, religious right, evangelical, conservative, Catholic, you know, orthodox group over here that's going to just ram it down on the rest of us? Like, is it actually possible that there could be a a widespread unity across the population and society to support a law-enforcing Sunday? Now, you have to remember, when we talk about Sunday observance, we're talking about the mild phase of the Sunday law, merely taking Sunday off not an enforcement of worship on Sunday. Okay, so that changes the dynamics a little bit. Is that possible for there to be widespread support? And this is an important disclaimer. Whenever we start looking at, I'm going to look at some you know, contemporary examples here. It's important to note that this is not predictive. Okay, I'm not here predicting what exactly is going to transpire and what's going to bring about the Sunday law. Far be it from me, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet to do such a thing. But I think it's helpful to be descriptive, to take a look at what's actually being said today, to see, is this complete craziness what we see in the Bible? Does the Bible actually give us a realistic scenario? So, number one, let's take a look at this example. This is a report of the European Sunday Alliance webinar from June 1 of 2021. So this was just a few months ago. And notice, the European Sunday Alliance, who are they? They are a conglomerate of hundreds of trade unions, community groups, religious groups, and um, uh, like lobbyists all working together to promote Sunday as a day off for European Union citizens. And this webinar was entitled The Right to Disconnect and the Need for a European Weekly Common Day of Rest. And this report says the webinar followed up on the Alliance's recent activities on the right to disconnect and aim to raise awareness on the need to establish at the EU level a weekly common day of rest for all EU citizens. And it's called the European Sunday Alliance. So what what day do you suppose they're recommending here for the common day of rest? The speakers agreed on the necessity to introduce a right to disconnect in times of increasing blurring of boundaries in order to avoid quote-unquote, new forms of slavery. Notice the reasoning behind why they're doing this. Participants, through their questions, also highlighted the economic desirability of synchronized free time. What do they mean by synchronized free time? It simply means everyone should take the day off together. Not everybody get a, you know, day off here and there, but everyone should get the same day off. Okay, why is that? Stressing that many workers appear to have lower stress levels and are generally happier and are able to recover better during common time off with families and friends and communities so that in the long run, they are performing better at work and less often ill or absent. This group here is not strictly a religious group. Trade unions, labor unions, governmental agencies, lobbyists, as well as religious groups. All right, well, let's keep going. What other examples are there? In March 19, 2020, this last year, right at the start of the pandemic, Roman Catholic brother Michael Valenzuela says this, 
This pandemic is the first calamity of global magnitude to have shaken the world this badly since the Second World War. A friend drew my attention today to reports that due to less travel and public activity, there's a lot less trash accumulating on streets, a lot less uh, polluting in the air and water, and that for these few days, as the engines of manufacturing grind to a halt, the earth is getting the first real chance of rest and renewal that it has not had in decades. So maybe one way to look at the current crisis is to see it as the planet's desperate demand for a Sabbath, a cessation from unbridled consumerism and the parasitic activity that work becomes when the pursuit of profit becomes its primary goal. Pope Francis has warned us that the global economy as it operates today often ends up generating profits at the expense of planet and the poor. Hmm, interesting. The planet needs a Sabbath. Now, what day do you suppose he thinks the Sabbath is? He refers to Pope Francis, and of course, he's referring to Pope Francis and his monumental encyclical Laudato Si from 2015, in, in which he was talking about protecting the environment, protecting our planet, which is our common home. And in his encyclical, this is what he says about Sunday. Sunday, like the Jewish Sabbath, is meant to be a day which heals our relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others, and with the world. It protects human action from becoming empty activism. It also prevents that unfettered greed and sense of isolation which makes us seek personal gain to the detriment of all else. So the day of rest, centered on the Eucharist, sheds its light on the whole week and motivates us to greater concern for nature and the poor. So somehow the Pope sees that Sunday is one of the tools in our arsenal to save the planet. Okay, you say, well, that's what the Catholics think. Okay, well, this is from May of last year, The Message, which is a Baptist magazine. Okay, an article that says, A Radical Environmental Proposal, A Day of Rest. So now this is a Protestant periodical. It says, Last week, as environmentalists around the world celebrated Earth Day, I was intrigued by the potential of a biblical solution to the problem of air pollution, a day of rest. The concept of a day of rest is nothing new of people of faith. We are familiar with God's six days of creation. Likewise, we know our Heavenly Father established the seventh day as a time of rest. I think we can say amen to the seventh day, right? Yes, six days of creation, the seventh day is for rest. But is that really what he's talking about? So what if a lockdown on major activity was sustainable for a time each year, just not all at one time? Wow. Imagine the possible ecological improvements if there was an annual pause of 52 days as opposed to the two weeks of inactivity measured for the study, and instead of 52 days straight, what if the interruption was only one day each week? Could something as simple as observing one day of rest for every six days of work make a difference in air quality and thus reduce the dire ecological impacts from pollution that many scientists predict for our world? Hmm. And of course, just a few weeks ago, a few days ago, October 4, of this year, Pope Francis and 40 faith leaders around the world called for urgent action to combat climate change. They're making it more and more of an urgency, and there are groups like Climate Sunday, the Green Sabbath Project, there are these, and then the European Sunday Alliance, we mentioned them earlier. There are groups popping up all over the place, all advocating this idea, hey, let's go back to the biblical model. Let's just take one day out of seven off. It's better for everyone. It's better for the environment. It's better for us. And you know what? They're actually quite right. Because God's ideal has always been for us to take the seventh day off, right? But the problem is when you mix 1% of poison with 99% of inert material, you still have poison on your hands. And of course, this is not all there is about this. 
so that was all the environmental climate change stuff. But what else are people saying? Okay, so this is June 17, 2020 in Crisis Magazine, which is a Catholic periodical. There's an article that says, bring back the blue laws. The blue laws are, of course, the laws that, you know, uh, enforced certain businesses to close on Sundays here in the United States. And notice carefully the appeal to the non-religious. Okay, this is not just bring back the blue laws because, you know, us Orthodox traditional Catholics, we want it. No, it's this, there is an appeal here for everyone, even if you don't believe like we do. Notice what they say. Acknowledging the rewards of the Sabbath are not limited only to Christians, like Pope Francis, who in the 2018 interview declared, one day of the week, that's the least. Out of gratitude to worship God, to spend time with the family, to play, to do all of these things, we are not machines. Jay Lefkowitz, a lawyer in New York City, in a May 7 op-ed for the Washington Post, argues that the Jewish Sabbath observance brings healthy separation and balance. He explains, and notice the appeal here and who they're appealing to. When Jews sanctify the Sabbath and keep it holy, they are making a conscious act of separation. At its most elementary, Shabbat is about separating the profane from the sacred, the work week from the Sabbath. Shabbat is about balance. Or to use a modern word, mindfulness. We can't recharge ourselves via a USB port. This aligns with other movements that appreciate the need to disconnect. Notice this word has repeated itself multiple times. Disconnect. That's the whole reason for the European Sunday Alliance, such as digital minimalism or secular monkhood, a phrase coined in a March First Things for, uh, essay by Andrew Taggart. So the appeal here for Sunday blue laws, notice carefully, it's that it enhances balance. It's good for mindfulness. It's good for us to disconnect. It's a form of digital minimalism or a secular monkhood. Notice these key words. You know, have you ever heard of the idea, oh, I am spiritual but not religious? Doesn't this sound great? You just take a day off to just focus on myself, right? To disconnect the minimal lifestyle, a secular form of spirituality, balance, mindfulness. These are the appeals that are being made for taking a day off. And then, some, and then this article veers and decide, the, the author decides to say the quiet part out loud. Okay, notice what he says here. America, for the sake of its own emotional and spiritual welfare, for the sake of its own sanity, needs to restore the blue laws. To preempt accusations of theocracy, I am not advocating mandatory church going. But notice what he says in parentheses. Though it wouldn't be the worst idea, but rather simple restrictions on which businesses remain open on Sunday. Did we hear something earlier about phases in the Sunday law? How the Sunday law is going to creep in as an entering wedge as it is good for everybody. It's for the common good. Why, won't you want, don't, why don't you want to take a day off with your family? I'm not saying you have to go to church, but <clears throat> I'd love to make you if I could. We're just saying, everybody, take the day off and close your business. They're saying the quiet part out loud. And then this is the last example I want to give from, from popular culture today. Andrew Sullivan is a political commentator here in the United States who happens to be homosexual. Okay? For whether that's that worthwhile to mention, you'll, you can be the judge of that. But he was on a, a podcast in which he was interviewed about secular culture in America. That's kind of his bread and butter. He analyzes culture and the political movements and things like that. And notice what he says 
about United States secular culture. We used to have religion as part of our inheritance, and we thought, oh, fuddy-duddy Christianity, we don't need it anymore. But we take it away, and suddenly we only realize what we had until it was gone. And that's my concern, which is why I honestly believe, honestly believe, and I don't know if this will sound cheesy or pious, but I do actually think that the only real long-term project to rescue liberalism is a revival of Christianity. Notice his interesting choice of words. The real, only real long-term project to restore or to rescue liberalism. And he's talking about secular political liberalism. He's not talking about conservatism. He's not talking about orthodoxy. He sees religion, Christianity, as the solution to rescue political liberalism. Okay, interesting choice of words. Our lives are full of choices, and that's almost the definition of freedom. We choose everything, and that's wonderful in so many ways, but at some point, we also want not to choose. We need as Christians to just obey and to submit in some way. And the safest, best, and psychologically and spiritually most productive way of doing that is going to a church in silence and kneeling and accepting that you're not everything, that there is something greater than you, and something that you're now required to do because you're just a human being at that service. Stand up now. Kneel down. Bow your head. He's talking about the need of transcendence. We need to understand our smallness in in the scope of things in order to have the liberal attitude to be able to give freedoms and offer freedom to other people. That's what he's saying. But then notice what he says next. That's what having Sunday, the Sabbath, did, which is also gone. We had a whole day where shops weren't open, where choice ended, where you actually had a day of quiet and rest. So if you just connect the dots of what this homosexual political commentator is saying, he's saying that going to church on Sunday and humbling yourself before a transcendent being that's out there, he views that as one of the final ways, solutions to rescue liberalism in the United States. You may or may not agree with him. I'm merely reporting what he said. This is descriptive, right, of what people are actually saying. So let's just summarize. What are people today saying about Sunday? It's a good day for moral, social, emotional, and spiritual renewal. It's a solution to the moral decline of society. It strengthens families and communities. It's good for proper work-life balance. It's an opportunity to disconnect. It's good for mindfulness and digital minimalism. It can help with secular spirituality. It improves health by reducing stress, anxiety, and depression. It's good for social justice and human rights. It prevents modern slavery or economic exploitation of the poor. A reduction of consumerism and greed is the remedy to save secular liberalism. It provides for the human need of transcendence. It saves the planet and the environment. It is for the common good. Wow. You know what? I have to say I agree with a lot of this. If, if, human, if humanity had kept the Seventh-day Sabbath consistently throughout history, I think we would have a lot of these benefits, right? But the issue is that the devil is about counterfeiting the true. And this shows me that there are plenty of on-ramps to Sunday all over the place. I can't tell you exactly how it's going to happen. 
far be it from me to predict. However, just looking at the landscape, when the Bible says, them that dwell on the earth shall set up the image to the beast, I see a great number of entry points in which many people can come to that point of wanting to do that. And this is how I believe we can see uh, the initial phases of the Sunday Law begin. And so this is a statement from a good friend of mine, Pastor Cameron DeVazier. I'm not quoting him because he is some inspired authority. Please don't get the wrong idea. I'm merely borrowing his words with his permission because he summarizes this better than, than I can. So <clears throat> this is what he says. Imagine if advocates from a host of swirling ideologies today could agree upon even one point of convergence, a single proposition that could address each issue respectively, a weekly universally respected day of rest, a day of rest. Even the wholly unreligious could appreciate some societally sacred time set apart for workers to cease from daily labor, a time for families to reconnect, a time for the environment to rest from exploitation, a time free from the pressures of commercial enterprise, and a time for traditional religious folk to worship their God. I believe in the not-so-distant future that Sunday will become regarded as a miracle elixir for what ails us, a panacea to our economic, environmental, psychological, and spiritual ills. I couldn't have said it better myself. This is the picture we see in prophecy. But of course, we know that the Sunday law doesn't remain mild. That's merely the the entering, entering wedge, and then it escalates from there. And Great Controversy 607 tells us this, as the movement for Sunday enforcement becomes more bold and decided, the law will be invoked against commandment keepers, they will be threatened with fines and imprisonment, and some will be offered positions of influence and other rewards and advantages as inducements to renounce their faith. We're going to talk more about this escalation process tomorrow afternoon, but I just want you to know that that is coming. So the question really here at this point is then, how do we respond to this? Okay, we see the prophecy in Revelation 13 say, it's them that dwell on the earth. It's going to be the, the groundswell. It's going to be a grassroots movement of people from different factions, different ideologies, different parts of the country, you know, different religions and different classes, all saying, this is what we want. So how do we respond to this? Is this the time for us to get active in political activism? Let's influence Congress to prevent this from happening. Get the right people elected to office and do all this stuff. Is that what we're supposed to do? Should we protest? Should we stand up and fight for a right? Or maybe, maybe we ought to just withdraw. Okay, we're not going to be involved with anything. We're going to withdraw into our little, you know, little preserve, our little compounds that is pure with just, you know, clean ideology and, and just the Bible and not involve ourselves with the world. Is that the way we ought to respond? The Bible actually gives us a solution. And it's in the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 14. We know this verse well, Revelation 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto who? Unto them that dwell on the earth, unto every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So notice in Revelation chapter 13, who sets up the image of the beast? Them that dwell on the earth. And God says, what's my solution? In Revelation chapter 14, the very next chapter, we need to take the everlasting gospel, the three angels' messages, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. There it is. 
And of course, the third angel's message is very clear. It says, the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So is preaching about the law of God and the true Sabbath and the, the deception of the devil, is that part of the three angels' messages? Well, yes, indeed. And notice carefully here, it makes it clear, some receive the mark in the forehead, they believe it. Conscientiously, they accept it. They believe the, the, the Sunday, the reasons for observing Sunday, but some receive it only in their hand. They don't really believe it. For political or economic expediency, they go along. Because there is a unified force of people who may even unwittingly go along with it in the end. And so, God's solution. Preach the three angels' messages to them that dwell on the earth. That's what we ought to do. God has given us our mission. He's given us our message. Identified us according to a prophetic time. And Satan's strategy is to influence the grassroots of society. And God's strategy is to counteract that influence with the everlasting gospel. The war of the great controversy is going to be fought. The final skirmish, the final battle is going to be fought over the hearts and minds of them that dwell on the earth. Individual, individual people making decisions for or against God. And this is why Revel- or Matthew chapter 24, verse 14 says this clearly. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Preach the gospel to them that dwell on the earth. And this is a sobering message. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 463. The work which the church has failed to do in a time of peace and prosperity, she will have to do in a terrible crisis under most discouraging, forbidding circumstances. The warnings that worldly conformity has silenced or withheld must be given under the fiercest opposition from enemies of the faith. We have our mission. And what we're also warned is that the work of carrying out this mission only gets more difficult. It doesn't get easier. And so it's not, it's one of these things like, okay, we'll just wait for this pandemic to be over and then it'll be easier. Uh Uh-uh, that's not what happens. The work must be done. The work will be done and better get busy doing it while we still have the measure of peace and prosperity we do today rather than wait until it's too late. But here's the promise. The work is not in vain. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 8, page 40, 41. In vision, I saw two armies in terrible conflict. One army was led by banners bearing the world's insignia. The other was led by the blood-stained banner of Prince Emmanuel. Standard after standard was left to trail in the dust as company after company from the Lord's army joined the foe and tribe after tribe from the ranks of the enemy, united with the commandment-keeping people of God. It's sobering, the statement, on one hand, because many, it says... Company after company from the Lord's army leave to join the enemy. I pray we aren't part of that number. We'll discuss this more tomorrow afternoon as well. But the promise is that tribe after tribe will come to take their place. That means the work of taking the gospel to every nation, kindred, tribe, and people will be fruitful. Preaching the gospel to them that dwell on the earth will be successful there will be those from among their number that joins the ranks 
of the remnant. And that is a promise to keep us faithful, even though it may be difficult. So our mission is reaching them that dwell on the earth. And our last statement, I promise, last statement for the night. Great Controversy, page 612. Servants of God, with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration, will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. By thousands of voices all over the earth, the warning will be given. Thus, the inhabitants of the earth will be brought to take their stand. Or I might say, thus, them that dwell on the earth will be brought to take their stand. This statement, the last thing I want to bring out, is that it says the servants of God, by the thousands all over the world, will hasten from place to place to give this warning message. What this tells me is that the final work of preaching the everlasting gospel to them that dwell on the earth is not going to be done by some singular, isolated, you know, mega ministry. Not the big name evangelist. If we're looking to the great, con- uh, not great controversy, GC, right? The <laughs> general conference is what I meant. I'm reading from the great controversy. The general conference to finish the work. We're looking at the wrong place. We have to look in the mirror. Individual voices by the thousands all over the earth is going to give the final message. And what this tells me also is that before we can give the everlasting gospel to them that dwell on the earth, we must accept it ourselves first. And if we don't, who's going to go tell them? God already told us. Yes, it's going to be hard, but the harvest is ripe. Yes, there will be thousands of people brought into the church, but it will be brought about by the lay people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, going out, winning one by one in this sphere of influence, souls for the kingdom. My good friend, Pastor Cameron, has a, has a statement that always gets me. We pray, Lord, help us remain faithful. I say, yes, let us also pray to be made useful. To be faithful to the mission that God has given to us, that we might be one of these servants of God, hastening from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. So the final appeal tonight, who will go to save them that dwell on the earth? Yes, we can know in Revelation 13, yeah, them that dwell on the earth, they will set up the image of the beast. We can know that intellectually, but what are we going to do about it? Someone's got to tell them the truth. Someone's got to tell them that there is a better way. And that is up to us. Sunday and them that dwell on the earth, both as a warning of what is to come, but also as an appeal of the work that is before us to do. So let's bow our heads together as we commit ourselves to this work. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity of scripture and prophecy. Things may seem unsettling in the world around us. The signs are fast fulfilling. We can sense it in our bones that you are coming soon. And yet, Lord, we know there is yet work to be done. And we know that there is yet a world to win with the gospel. And so we pray that you will inspire us, make us new, change us into your likeness, lighten our face with your glory, and empower us to hasten from place to place to preach the everlasting gospel to them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And may we be faithful 
as well as useful for you in these last days. This is our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.